<laughs> okay, now we can start. Locked On Bulls, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, a show for the most passionate fan base in the NBA. If you build it, they will come. Joe, you seen that movie? He's in the movie, Joe. Hosts Jordan Malley and Matt Peck dive into the best Bulls news and stories around the NBA. In our 670 of the score studios, Jordan Malley. Shout out to Jordan Malley. Did Matt Peck get a signed copy of that book? No, Matt Peck, he didn't. No, no. I'll talk to D. Rose. Yeah, guys, you're going to make, gonna make Matt, it happen. Matt, you will be getting your book soon. <laughs> Kick back and get ready for the best hour of your your day. Are players buying in, Jim? I, yes. Fair enough. And so all I was saying on this podcast, the Locked on Bulls podcast. Locked on Bulls, five days a week. Locked on Bulls starts now. You can just see the vibe. Here are your hosts, Jordan Malley and Matt Peck. What's up and welcome into Locked on Bulls, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm Jordan Malley, along with me is Matt Peck. Follow us on Twitter at Jordan C. Malley at Bulls underscore Peck and at Locked on Bulls. Hit us up on our text and voicemail line 331-979-1369. Drop your text, your voicemails, anything you got for us, 331-979-1369. Going to take your mailbag questions on the Bulls' new hire of their GM, Mark Eversley, and also talk about the last day episodes three and four but that's what we're here to do today matt welcome back as we were talking to you about if you listened to the first episode we dropped today said we were going to record a second one uh, because we have to of course not we we can't go a day without talking about and discussing and recapping the last dance parts three and four last night but before we do that matt how are you how you doing what's up jordan what's up Bulls nation happy to be talking to you buddy um Loved every second of episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Um, it's just such a fun time. The nostalgia is even sweeter because we have this this new hope and optimism in the present day because of the front office overhaul, as you just mentioned, the latest being the, the hiring of former Sixers executive uh, Mark Eversley. But I'd just like to start out today's episode by saying, let's hear it from a man, Horace Grant. Best line of those two hours, <laughs> straight up bitches. Oh, my God. Straight up bitches. Oh, my God. Horace was so great. He had he had a very small but very, very impactful role in that episode, and that was my favorite. I loved hearing that, and I loved hearing, too, him talk about like them finally beating Detroit and saying, like, even now thinking of that is like it's still hard to kind of describe and talk about because the the feeling is something I've never had before. Finally beating the enemy, the one that you've been going right. after for so many years. And in Jordan's words, saying like it, it almost was sweeter than actually winning the title. Getting past the Pistons was just like that roadblock that kept knocking them and knocking them and knocking them. Um, and of course, you know, that feeds into the whole story of MJ. Um, and his entire team after losing game seven and 90, you know, nobody's taking a vacation. We're going right back to the gym and Jordan and certainly also some of his teammates, but him working with his personal trainer, Tim Grover saying, I'm going to bulk up my body. I'm going to add some muscle. I'm, I'm going to start swinging back. You know, I'm not going to be the one just taking punches. I'm going to throw some punches. Um, but yeah, I love what Horace said about that, that, that feeling that's just, you know, the, the sheer gratification of trying and trying and trying and finally achieving that goal. You just can't put it into words. Um, And if you're so inclined to have that amazing part of a documentary and a Bulls legend immortalized, um, I found this on Twitter earlier today. A website called Super70SportsStore.com 
has a t-shirt available for sale right now with the Pistons, you know, blue, red, and white basketball logo, like the classic Pistons basketball logo. But instead of Detroit Pistons in the middle, it says straight up bitches. And <laughs> guess who certainly already purchased one today and is anxiously awaiting its arrival? This guy. I'm going to have to go there and buy one. That is the greatest. Oh, my God. Horace Grant is the best. And and he delivered in the, the short role he had in the two episodes last night. Scotty was unshakable. Didn't even want a Band-Aid. When we saw that, it was over. You know, it was just like, okay, it's a foul. Um, let's go ahead and finish kicking their ass and, you know. And put them out of their misery. Straight up. <laughs> That's what they walked off like. <laughs> No, we just kick gas. Go, go, go ahead and go. That laugh is the best too. It reminds me of Stacey King's <laughs> laugh when he gets like uncontrollably yeah. hysterical. You go. <laughs> so that was good. Uh, Matt, did you learn anything new as somebody who's who lived through this dynasty and knew most of these storylines? I asked you this last week. I'm going to continue to ask you this every week. Uh, what's something that for fans like you who lived through this entire thing? What's something that you learned new from three and four? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of stuff is secondhand. I've heard a lot of it. A lot of the bad boys, piston stuff we got in their own 30 for 30 documentary that is in its own right, a brilliant documentary. The bulls are heavily featured in that and the, the playoff series and the rivalry and the grudges and the walk off and all that stuff. Like we got new reactions to that, but you know, like MJ said, like, man, you can show me whatever you want to show me. I still think that guy's a fucking asshole, you know, regarding Isaiah Thomas. So in that sense, that's kind of how I felt about a lot of this stuff is like, show me what you want to show me. I know a lot of this as, as not only a diehard Bulls fan, but a Bulls historian who put a lot of time and effort into going back and reading everything there is to read about the old days from, you know, the earlier parts of the dynasty that I don't remember, or even parts of the dynasty that I remember vividly as, you know, as a kid, but I remember the games, not necessarily the stories. Um, obviously like the, the Rodman going to Vegas thing. Like I remember that. I, I even remember seeing, I think it was not the, the you know, the vault footage, because I feel like I remember seeing it, but that footage of Rodman after they do the whole can or cannot Dennis go on a vacation for a quick second of him just like slamming a Miller light, getting on a hog without a helmet and just peeling out of a parking lot. And then it's like, there goes Dennis. I feel like I remember seeing that as a kid. Um, but some of the stuff that I really enjoyed was the relationship that they dove into between Dennis and Phil Jackson. Um and the mutual interest they had in Native American heritage, but then also specifically with Phil, his early coaching days. Because, like, that's some of the crazy shit that you're like, okay, I did not hear that story. Like, I knew some of the stuff about Phil and his experiences experimenting with with uh, psychedelics and recreational drugs back in the day. Like, I knew that, that, that Phil Jackson was a hippie who was, like, hippie flipping and dosing and all that good stuff. But his early coaching days in Puerto Rico, those were the stories from from Sunday night's episodes that I was like, hell yeah, that's the content I'm here for. When he's the coach of, you know, these this small Puerto Rican league where these rivaling neighborhoods of Puerto Rico like legit hate each other. And there's like Phil say, you know, fans would be throwing rocks at my car on my way out or like, you know, the the mayor of one of these towns shot one of the refs in one of these games or, right. the you know, the opposing fans had the the chicken that they murdered and spilled the blood of a murdered chicken onto the opponent's bench. Like that is grade a documentary documentary material. 
it's wild. Like that scene alone, to me, it explains so much. It explains to me as a fan who didn't get to experience Phil Jackson's era, at least with the Bulls, to watch him coach the Lakers and destroy the Knicks front office, but we won't talk about that. The idea that he went over there, he was kind of this fun-loving guy, like you were talking about, a little bit of a hippie, but then all of a sudden learned his edge, got his edge from coaching and and living through that Costa Rica experience or that Puerto Rico experience where guys are just beating the shit out of each other. And how about that too? How about that little tidbit we got about him is after getting ejected out of the game, we saw a short clip of where Phil Jackson's literally on the floor, like screaming at the ref, pulling players apart. We hear the punishment for him is he wasn't allowed to coach at any home games, so he had to go to all those away games and still coach, get booed, harassed, basically shit on. And that was his punishment, and that was his basic, quote-unquote, suspension. But that's where you get the toughness and the edge, I think, that kind of balanced Phil out as a person who could connect with all of these players, but also had a, hey, I'm a badass, we're here to to ram a 40-point lead down your throat, and I don't care what it takes. And that's where I feel like a lot of us, at least me, I didn't know that where he got that from, and clearly... That must have been a huge role in his life. So I did. I love the Rodman and Phil Jackson connections because I think there's so many parallels there as well. Yeah, and you you know me, uh, most of our listeners who have listened to this podcast for a while um, or follow me on Twitter know how much of a diehard Rodman fan I am. So, of course, I was looking forward to that, knowing that we were going to get a heavy dose of Rodman um, in these episodes. And um, he's just been such a polarizing and 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 huge figure in my life like fell in love with this basketball player as a kid I I loved Dennis as much as I loved MJ and the the part that goes underappreciated I think when people say ah you know Dennis Rodman like Draymond Green whatever whatever no that was my other favorite part and I I had heard certain similar things but to hear it in Dennis's own words in this doc um was really enjoyable for me when he talks about his science of rebounding because the dude is hands down no debate don't start a debate best rebounder in NBA history and the way that he practiced that craft it's like there was some part of him that was idiot savant rebound a basketball but he also worked at it relentlessly and the, the great anecdote of the flip of most players who want to get to the NBA or are already in the NBA and want to work on their game, instead of bringing a buddy or two to rebound balls for them while they're shooting, he did the opposite. He brought guys to go shoot, shoot Jays in the gym so that he could practice rebounds. And him talking about different players in the league, whether it's Magic or Larry or Michael, having different spins on their shots that make the, the misses go off the rim in different ways and different directions and and so seeing him talk through how he developed that skill with highlights of his rebounds, it was, I mean, awe-inspiring to watch. And with all of the flair and the off-court drama and, you know, even they went further into it in the Bad Boys doc, but even a little bit in episode three of this one talking about the the demise of the Pistons and how much that really hurt Dennis. Like he lost his family, Chuck Daly leaving, you know, IT and Lampier having a falling out and all that shit. Mahorn getting picked up in the expansion draft. And then the, you know, that night in 1993, where he's found in, you know, the parking lot of the Palace of Auburn Hills with a shotgun in his lap. Um, 
that tormented side of Dennis and then also like the the rebel partying side of Dennis that we get the the Carmen Electra story and the Vegas party footage and all that stuff. It's fun and it's great and it's a crazy part of the story. But to me, the rebounding is always should always be at the core conversation of who Dennis Robin was. The dude was a Hall of Famer and the best rebounder ever. I think the second or third year in the league, I actually figured out what I can do best, rebound and play defense. Basically, I just started learning how to perfect that. I just used to have my friends late at night, three, four in the morning, go to the gym. I said, shoot the ball. I just shoot over here, shoot over here, shoot over there, shoot over there. I just sit there and react, react. I just practiced a lot about the angle of the ball and trajectory of it. You got a Larry Bird, it's going to spin. You got a, a Magic, it maybe spin. When Michael shoot over here, I position myself right there. Now I hit the rim, it's boom, uh, click and go back this way, boom, here, here, click and go that way, boom, that way, click here and go like this way. So basically, I just start learning how to put myself in a position to get the ball. Rebound, kept alive by Rodney. I was pretty much like that rash, <laughs> hopefully, that rash you can't ever get rid of, right? Man, I love that you brought that up because that was one of my favorite parts of the two episodes last night. And, you know, for a basketball junkie, just to hear one of the best rebounders in the history of the game talk about how he wanted it more and, you know, quickly realized after a couple of years in Detroit that if he wanted to stay around and he wanted to be truly elite and have an impact, he needed to focus on his strengths and the the levels at which he did that were insane. They were Jordan-esque. There, there's only very few players that could live up to the the work ethic and the mentality that Jordan had in some respects. I mean, Jordan's on a different level than everybody, but to even get close to it, Rodman was similar in that era of trying to focus on his defense, his rebounding, and he knew he could, he could manipulate that strength into something great. And that started early on in his career in Detroit. Uh, so I loved hearing that too and just seeing the the rebounding and, and all the little things that go behind Rodman too. And anybody that says Rodman is a dumb guy, I mean, I think you need to go you need to go do more research on Rodman too, because he's not a very, very, very smart dude. And he wasn't gifted any of this either. I mean, Rodman talked about how he didn't like playing basketball that much, even in his own 30 for 30, which I highly recommend anybody who hasn't gone and seen that already go back and watch that or go back and rewatch it because he talks about how he didn't really have a huge love for basketball uh, at the beginning. And so for me, that was a huge part of this, too, and just his intellect on being able to focus on that and, and the drive that he had is it parallels Michael in so many ways. And it makes sense why those two guys fit so well together. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I think it's, it's important for people who only, you know, whether they're younger or they didn't know the whole story cause they're not a Bulls fan or a Pistons fan or whatever of, of Dennis and his life. And, and just like see the headlines of the last few years of like, you know, his failed experiment of, you know, even though they did have that exhibition basketball game with some retired NBA players over in North Korea and him trying to open a door to use his words. Um, that because it was in such a difficult time in his life and it's when, unfortunately for him, the timing was bad and he was falling off the wagon, a guy who's battled abuse um, and alcoholism his whole life, uh, he, he, he bit off more than he could chew, I think, with that stuff and he kind of came unraveled and, you know, you see this footage of him um, from that 
uh, you know, those various episodes and trips to North Korea and then like the interview on CNN with Cuomo that went viral because Dennis is clearly out of sorts and like the, the sad, tormented Dennis, who some people think is still just, you know, like striving to be in the spotlight uh, in his post-retirement years. That's that's such a misconception and not at all the story. Um, and I think it's just mo- mostly about a guy who has been crippled his whole life by an inability to understand feelings, simplistic feelings of, of rejection and acceptance and battling between those two things. Um, that's what it's always come down to for me as a Dennis Rodman fan. I always root for him, though. Jordan, I would love to get your take on the Doug Collins stuff uh, because I think, once again, Bulls fans of today are like, Doug Collins, oh, he's that guy who was a broadcaster for a while. He had some coaching. I know, like, you know, when he was, like, young and had a white guy fro, he was the Bulls coach before Phil arrived. Uh, but now he's just a special advisor who we don't really understand why he's here and what he's doing. But you got a great look at the relationship of Doug Collins and Michael Jordan. And that was my, one of my other favorite parts of the doc. And I also think it highlights something important, which is this is another example of something Jerry Krause did that he got panned for, that he got made fun of for, that m- created this big divide between him and the team that ultimately ended up being a great decision because MJ really liked Doug and he liked Doug's offense. That was MJ do whatever you want. And he didn't like Phil at first, but Jerry Krause is the one who said, we got to, we got to get Phil and Tex working together. We have to install Texas triangle offense. Phil's the right guy to lead this. And we got to move on from Doug. To me, that's a huge part of that. Those episodes last night. I feel like it's in, it was ingenious in, in many ways for Kraus. Although things did pan out for Kraus seemingly time and time again when he decided to go with the guy he felt like he trusted or he wanted and was very loyal to, you saw it with Phil Jackson. I mean, he talked about it. The first time Phil tried to interview for an assistant coach job, he showed up and was like, looked like he was a bum off the street and ended up not getting the job. And then Kraus had to convince Collins of all of these new things that Jackson was really good at and and talk him up basically and had to coach Jackson in how to interview for a job in the NBA before he ended up getting the job Uh, you saw many instances of that and I think for somebody who never lived through this watching Krause do that and then succeed with it, it it was a measure of not only some ingeniousness but also some luck I mean how many of those moves don't pan out and you know take left turns instead of right turns uh, for the bad instead of the good, this team is a whole lot different, but you're right. The Doug Collins stuff, I think he's gained a lot. He gained a lot of points in my book, uh, just not knowing a lot of the fire and the passion that he had when he was a Bulls coach. And I would love to hear more about that because the only thing I think about Doug Collins in a sense is his last stint with the Sixers as a coach where he was kind of told he was a little too old for the game. Things had kind of passed him by. And then uh, some of the criticism he got when he was uh, elected an advisor here with the Bulls too. And uh, some of the negative things that have come up about him here, but MJ's love for Collins and then just seeing him like, like how about him walking off the floor and he looks like uh, he looks like Sean Miller from Arizona with like, uh, his entire shirt is drenched in sweat. Uh, sweater than yeah. some of the players that played in the game I thought was absolutely insane. Uh, but Matt, I wanted to play you my favorite thing, uh, which was going into game seven of the, or going into the final game against the Cavs in 89 uh, with the ELO shot. MJ talking about 
uh, the decision of the defense in that final shot, and then also Doug Collins' reaction in his post-game press conference after the game, which I thought was, was absolutely classic. Everybody knew where the ball was going to go. You know, they had Craig Elo on me at the time, which, you know, honestly was a mistake because the guy that played me better was Ron Harper. We up by one. I said, Coach, I got MJ. I got MJ. So the coach goes me, I'm going to put Elo on MJ. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I got to stop it there for a second. That was the best, too. Rod Harper going, really? All right, fuck this bullshit. He knew MJ was going to hit that shot before it even happened. He was like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? I I like I I am eagerly awaiting my Horace Grant straight up bitches t-shirts arrival. We oh also need God. a Ron Harper fuck that bullshit t-shirt like so badly. I need a t-shirt that just says fuck that bullshit Ron Harper. <laughs> we needed like the throwback Cavs logo similar to the to the Detroit yes. logo. That would be great. Yeah. And like I posed that question on Twitter as I was watching Sunday night like if it is Harper instead of Elo guarding MJ does he still get free for the inbound pass does he still hit that shot does Harp contest it in a way that Elo couldn't because you go back and watch that play and like I've watched that play a million times in my life it is perhaps even more so than the last shot in game six in Utah 98 the most iconic shot of MJ's career you you know it's winter going home game five in a best of five on the road and a series where everyone picked the Cavs to win and it's the first real piece of winning, the real taste of winning that the young MJ Bulls had ever had. So in, 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 many, in many ways, it's just as iconic, if not more so, than anything else MJ ever did. So, of course, for that reason, everybody's seen that shot 100 times. Elo contests it well. Like, there's not a whole lot more he could have done. MJ did an MJ thing where he was able to wrestle free, took a dribble, and covered so much ground in just a matter of a second, and then leapt in the air and then just froze there a double clutched and hit probably one of the most difficult shots in NBA playoff history. I like, I, you know, I got mad love for Ronnie Harper and I'm so curious to see what would have happened if Harp guarded him instead of Elo. But I, that that's just MJ greatness right there, man. doesn't matter who you put on him. It is crazy to think about one of your most iconic shots came early on in your career before you won six championships one of the most is still to this day that that call and I never got to see it live, but that call every time I listen to it, it just gives me goosebumps. Johnny Red Kerr and Jim Durham on the call on the Bulls radio. It's still one of those iconic calls too of all time, uh, just because you think about the place, the time and even just hearing the setup of that story and how those final seconds and you, you listen to MJ too there talk about that final play in those last 10 seconds, even leading up to it, talking about the be- the bucket he hit uh, to go ahead uh, by one point and then the Cavs come down and right. knock down a bucket before there's only what three seconds left on the clock uh, but I had to laugh because this brings me back to Doug Collins really quick uh, another great highlight is after the game talking in the post game press conference we got this Jim that was uh, get the ball Michael everybody get the out of the way <laughs> <laughs> <Hold> the basket <laughs> 
That's the best. Everybody give the ball to Michael, get the fuck out of the way and roll to the basket, which is which is amazing. So uh, I don't know if anything, Matt, I, I would hope that people like my age and younger fans that didn't get to experience this live firsthand ha- give kudos and give a little bit more, I, I guess, give points to Doug Collins in his shaping and evolution of, of what the Bulls were in their dynasty years before all any of these championships were won. Yeah, and I think I I saw a lot of Bulls fans asking, like, man, like Dick Collins seemed to be a coach that had a great relationship with MJ. And in a in a different world, we go back in time and Doug Collins is never fired. Phil Jackson's never put in his place. Do the Bulls still win those six rings? And some say, Well, you know, MJ's greatness, yeah, you probably eventually get there. I don't think so. Um, and again, it goes back to one of many things that Jerry Krause deserves credit for um, because if you go back and look at the bulls offensively, especially like given today's metrics and offensive rating and offensive advanced number, uh, you know, uh, analytics and all that stuff in the changeover from when they were running Doug Collins, MJ, you know, take 40 shots a night stuff to actually installing text winners, triangle offense under Phil Jackson, the, the change is staggering. The Bulls became an offensively elite team, not a team with an offensively elite player. And there were some reservations. Like you heard MJ talking about it in the doc. Like Phil wanted to take take the ball out of my hands. And I'm I'm sitting here saying, like, nah, I'm I'm Michael Franken Jordan. But what Phil and, and the the way Phil phrased it to him was like, Well, all right, Mike, you might not be the scoring champion anymore. You might not win the scoring title this season if we play this way that Tex Winter wants us to play. But I think MJ is a smart enough cat to know that he was getting sick of all these people around the league saying that he wasn't magic and he wasn't bird and he might be winning a bunch of scoring titles, but he could never win anything other than that. So here's this new coach who's got this kind of different system that might actually have MJ shooting a little less, but do you want to win a scoring title or do you want to win a Larry O'Brien trophy? And that was the big key. And then, so, of course, that's how you get the story about the Bulls in their first finals against the Lakers. And Phil Jackson, after the Bulls offense was struggling and struggling and struggling during a timeout, going to MJ and and saying, MJ, who the fuck is open? And MJ, you know, kind of exasperated. It's like, John's open, John Paxson. Okay, then. Give him the ball. And Paxson knocked down a bunch of shots. And that's, you know, one of the, the other early, you know, playing days, moments of, of Paxson's career as a bull that was actually, you know, steeped in a lot of greatness and a lot of great moments that uh, younger Bulls fans obviously don't see and maybe some of them don't want to hear about. But that was what that and, of course, the, okay, Scotty, you guard magic and, you know, put him on a full court 94-foot press. Those were two key moments that really secured that first title for the Bulls. And it was MJ listening to Phil when Phil said, use the system pass the ball it's a great great point and I think it goes back to talking about not only Tex winner's greatness but same thing with Phil Jackson and maybe even giving kudos to Jerry Krause who who believed in Tex winner's system of the triangle offense and believed in Phil Jackson as well and the idea that Michael didn't like Phil at first and you know you could understand it from Michael's standpoint young rising star in the NBA and all of a sudden you bring in a coach that wants to come in here and take the ball out of my hands and 
I thought they did a great job as, as best they could have in this documentary at the end of that fourth episode to really kind of sum that up and say, here's the turning point where things really change. We got our ass kicked by Detroit and we're tired of that happening. MJ get rallies everybody, brings them back without even having an offseason. And, and they got to work. They got to work right away. And then him also trusting his teammates. And like you were just talking about, Paxson. Paxson was the first guy that he, it seemed like he trusted. And then then he went on to help Scotty Pippen have the great career he had. And Tex Winter was part of that too. Scotty even said in the documentary, talking about how the triangle offense made him a better player, made him the star that he was. Uh, so it was great to hear those little things too. Uh, Matt, I, I, I loved seeing and hearing from all the players and from hearing from MJ after they finally had won that title and talking about the emotions that kind of poured out of MJ and it was the first real glimpse into what it was like to see MJ kind of break down after winning that final winning the first championship of the six and the kind of impact it had on those guys I think was really really impressive and I want to I want to share that with our listeners right now when you get to that finish line and you know that you won all those emotions that you wrapped up into, you can just kind of let go. I mean, everybody knows, has the picture of, uh, in their mind, when we beat Cleveland on that last shot and he's punching the air and he's all excited. That's who we knew, the competitive Michael Jordan. The win at all cost Michael Jordan. Sometimes we question whether he was human whether he had feelings. He's just a guy that was totally focused on one thing and one thing only. The only emotion we had ever seen out of him was anger or frustration. We were literally stunned to see those emotions. When they beat us, well, we met in between both locker rooms and he just put his arms and just started crying. He was so happy that he had won, that he busted through. That was a special moment for him and myself. It's a beautiful feeling. If you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose to them. You know, and I'm gonna lose to Mike. And that, that's how it, how it should be. At last, I fit somewhere in the category of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. That was something you had mentioned right there at the end is him talking about that category he was starting to be placed in, the one where it was Larry and Magic being the two guys that not only made individual stardom, but also made their teams better and won championships. And MJ was just a part of the, yeah, well, he's a self, self-score, self one of the greatest players, but he's an individual player. He hasn't won anything as a team. And I thought that cemented it. It was really cool to hear Magic. I mean, moments after the game, Magic talking about that and talking about how he was glad to finally see MJ win something in their meeting in in the locker room shortly after that series was over. Yeah, you know what that is? That's Magic Johnson not being a straight up bitch. <laughs> That's what that is. That's uh, you know, that is sportsmanship. Um and that is the, you know, the passing of a torch the way it should be. Um because, you know, Magic in 91 was getting pretty old. You know, it would be not long after that, that the NBA world and the entire country would be shocked by, you know, his, uh, his reveal, his announcement that he had tested positive for HIV. Um, and then that obviously put uh, some complications on the back end of, of magic's career. 
but that certainly was uh, an older aging team um, in LA with kind of some new pieces to replace some of the old pieces. It, you know, it wasn't the the same magic worthy Kareem Showtime Lakers. It was the the last little pieces of that. Um, and even still, it was a respectful uh, passing of the torch because magic. You you also heard him say in this documentary even before I believe that that uh, 91 title was won saying Michael Jordan is the most talented player in this league by far. He, he got it. Larry bird got it. They saved the league from some dark times, but their days were coming to an end. And this charismatic young superstar, Michael Jordan was ready to, to take over the league. Um, and obviously the, and I loved hearing will produce thoughts on that saying that like MJ's teammates were shocked to see those kind of emotions come out of him where he's, you know, the, the iconic video and the iconic photo of MJ just, you know, crying and clutching the Larry O'Brien trophy with his dad and his dad, you know, arm around his shoulder. I mean, it's one of the most iconic fi- uh, pictures in all of sports. And it is the emotion behind it from a guy who had only shown, you know, killer instinct, you know, out for blood competition, as Phil said, you know, the fist pumping after the shot in Cleveland in game five, this was something new. This was a new side of a player who was taking his rifle plays to top the league. It was just a really cool moment. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and Bill Wennington's comments there too, I thought were especially strong as well. Talking about, you know, the iconic moment is the guy that everybody always saw and, and saw in the photo shot of him pumping his fist after hitting the shot, but you never saw the guy that broke down and cried. And, you know, he had two emotions. It was being angry and, you know, he had that fire in him. And that's all you saw all the time. It was just relentless. And finally to see him break down was something new to everybody and, and new to his, even to his teammates, which is kind of insane to think about. Uh, Matt, the last two things I want to touch on, uh, one positive, one kind of a funny uh, offense story in this these two episodes, and then finally kind of where we were left off at the end of episode four. But let's hit on the, the funny thing was talking about, uh, we got that little snapshot of MJ's security team and being called the Sniff Brothers, which I thought was, was absolutely amazing. Okay, everybody, let's go meet the Sniff Brothers. These are, these are the Sniff Brothers over here. There's, there's Gus Sniff, C.T. Sniff, Calvin Sniff, Tom Sniff, John Michael, John, Sniff. John Michael Sniff. These are all the Sniff Brothers. Hey, take care of Michael over here. Sniff Brothers are Michael's security guys. A Sniff Brother is actually a jock sniffer. So we used to say everybody was sniffing Michael's jock, so all those guys would always be around. He's the general sniff right here. Brigadier General Gus Sniff. Brigadier General. What's he doing about the president? Y'all get out of here. We got a heated debate. We got a heated debate about the president. Y'all got to get out of here. Country next week. <laughs> gonna be running the country. If the president, if the president had Sniff Brothers, he wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was great too, and I have a kind of a personal connection. Uh, my grandma is really good friends with 
a guy who worked for 20 plus years for Reinsdorf and his security team and was one of the essential guys. He wasn't pictured in this, but I was one of the essential guys when Jordan was here as part of his security team and kind of was like one of a really close ally to Reinsdorf in terms of security overall at the United Center. Uh, so I've, I've heard a bunch of stories of him just being able picking MJ up, whether it was from the airport or taking him to one restaurant or another or a concert or, you know, a club or a casino, wherever it may be. He had all of these stories about MJ, which was fascinating. And on top of that, too, I mean, Reinstorf gave out rings to everybody. So he has six rings from the Bulls. He's got uh, the World Series ring as well from the White Sox. So really cool. And just kind of an off end, like funny little tidbit about this Bulls team and MJ and who he was is having his own security team and being called the Sniff Brothers is great. His jock sniff is just hilarious. Yeah, that that was a great detail that I that, that I thought was awesome and uh, and fascinating, and that's really cool about um, about your family connection. Um, and, and I think it speaks to the part of this doc that is something that maybe younger fans are also learning for the first time, which is just how big of a deal this team was, as like in a in the lens of media obsession, in a time when sports media was still not in its infancy, but in its adolescence as it comes to 24-7 around-the-clock coverage and there's no social media. Players don't have smartphones, so you're not getting you know any accidental leaks. There's not burners. You know, There's none of this. It's just camera crews and microphones with occasional access. And this team got followed around that season like the fucking Beatles. Like all of the footage you see of them, you know, make, going to and from hotels on road trips, going, you know, making their way around uh, different airport tarmacs and stuff, getting on and off flights. They were mobbed everywhere they went. And even like w- one of the other things I loved was that shot of that family that clearly had come to Chicago from Nashville to see a Bulls game. And that kid who got Dennis's uh, yes. sneakers. Um, and, and Dennis's autograph after the game. And it's like, that's, that's no lie. Or like that other adorable clip of those siblings who it's like, you know, we, our parents told us we could have, you know, presents under the Christmas tree, or we could go see Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. And like, we chose the bulls like that, that shit speaks to me. Um, it's just as far as like my childhood obsession with this team. And it was crazy to, to reaffirm just how big of a deal this team was because like when I was a kid and especially all of the huge weight put on this last season, knowing the stuff we, that we heard, this will be Phil's last season. It's probably Michael's last season. Can they get one more title out of this old tired group? Can the, the greatest of all time finish his career off with another ring? It was such a momentous time in Chicago and all of it felt larger than life to me as a kid. I was like, this shit is crazy. And it's like, you go back and look at it 22 years later. And I'm like, oh no, I wasn't a, just a kid living in a fantasy, blowing things out of proportion. It was that big. Like, of course, MJ had a security detail that ran 10 deep. Of course he did. It's crazy. Cause I don't really have anything to compare it to either. Even if you think about, just not even the NBA, but just across the leagues. 
what's a dynasty that that transcended on and off the floor in, in terms of the media and entertainment? I mean, I guess you could point at the Warriors, maybe, or maybe the Heat nah, run man. back in the early 2010s, not, but it doesn't even compare. Not, not even close. Not even close. And obviously, very popular in the Bay Area, very popular in certain parts of California. The Bulls were global, man. And I'm not saying that the Warriors don't have fans around the world, but I mean, not, there's no comparison. There's like who on that Warriors team could even say they have the amount of fame that not, not Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time has, but even Dennis Rodman had Dennis Rodman was the biggest celebrity in the world. And he was the third best player on that team. That's insane. Should Dennis come back on time? Mm-mm. He didn't come back on time. We had to go get his ass out of bed. And I'm not going to say what's in his bed and where he was and blah, blah, blah. There's a knock on the door. It's Michael Jordan. And I hid. I, 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 didn't, I didn't want him to see me like that. So I, like, I'm just like hiding behind the couch with covers over me. Come on. You, we got to get to practice. Dennis came back and joined the team. And that's the way it went that year. <laughs> just fell. <laughs> that's the way it went that year. Like That's the way it went. The memes we got last night were great too. Just like I retweeted one of them, which was my favorite. It was like uh, Rodman getting dra- his ass dragged back to practice by Jordan, and it was just like Patrick getting grabbed by the top of his head. It was just from SpongeBob. I love my SpongeBob memes, but it was just it's it was one of the greatest. And Carmen Electra, how about her underrated performance and underrated appearance in this documentary? Man, just crazy. Um, and so there there was a little confusion about how some of that story was done um they didn't have to go to vegas to get rodman back so he was in vegas and he was there longer than they thought you know they did that amazing clock like the counting up of hours and they got past the 48 hour mark that they gave him and it got up to like above 80 hours but so he uh, had gotten back from vegas um and was uh, holed up at his place in chicago and that is where that story happened where mj had to go and drag Dennis out of bed, and Carmen Electra's there hiding. And uh, the director of this documentary, Jason Ayer, said in an interview with, I think, Jalen and Jacoby, um, that one of the extra details that, that we did not get in the documentary is that, to his recollection, the way it was told to him, is that MJ dragged Dennis out of that room by his nose ring. Like, <laughs> grabbed his nose ring and was like, man, get the fuck out here. Get to practice. Oh, my um, God. And I, I've also heard, like, there's there are still so many other details to that story that we did not get in this documentary um, because they are sworn to secrecy by various people. But those who have been lucky enough to hear that story say it's one of the most epic stories of all time. But, I mean, they're like that's the kind of shit that you're like, this shit in today's NBA and today's NBA media would be unheard of it would rock nba twitter like nothing ever has um you know like i think an example that my buddy big dave used recently is like remember a couple years ago when eric bledsoe said he was unhappy on like a (laughs) shitty team that nobody cared about and it just like nba twitter went nuts i don't want to be here yeah yeah that's all i said and it just like it was it was huge news or jimmy butler at his t-wolves practice saying you know you fucking need me and I'm going to win with the scrubs. Imagine being in today's social media world when Michael freaking Jordan walks out of a practice because he accuses his coach coach of fixing the score of a practice scrimmage. 
like so many elements to this 90s, especially this 97, 98 Bulls team. In today's world of media, I mean, good Lord. Somebody write the book. A colorful 48 hours in Vegas. Somebody write the book because I'm sure you could write three, 400 pages on just those 48 hours from all the perspectives that you were getting. And like you were saying to all the stories that nobody's ever has been sworn to secrecy and nobody's have ever shared outside the people that have the knowledge of it previously, uh, I think is, it's just, it's incredible. Like you said too, what do we get in modern day? We get Draymond Green crying in his car in the parking lot after losing the finals and calling KD to come save him. Like those are the storylines we get and not, not the MJ called his teammates and said, we're getting our ass back in the, the work the facility and we're getting back to Chicago and we're working out starting tomorrow right after a loss. So you, you see the different comparisons of the eras and how things are handled now compared to how, how they were handled back then. But that brings me to my final point, Matt, where we kind of were left in, in episode four and this will kind of wrap us up. Uh, but a constant theme I'm seeing over the first four episodes is uh, the documentary's interesting way of how they are perceiving the way the media covered these guys, not only locally, but nationally. And the frustration that you see with the players, too, as they kind of talk and going through these constant cycles of uh, media scrums and just being constantly nagged and attacked because they were such big stars. Uh, but I wanted to start, we played the one last week of Scotty Pippen being asked about MJ and MJ being asked about Scotty and their futures and constantly just being nagged and nagged and nagged about it. Uh, but I, I thought the reaction that Rodman had in his frustration with the media was very telling. And then also at the very end, once we got the Krause report about Phil Jackson hearing the almost the fed up, like MJ being completely fed up with the media in general of asking questions about his future. So let's hear from Rodman, then MJ. Think about this team. People don't understand. It's just not basketball that we have to deal with on this team. It's not just bad. It's, it's, it's the pressure of, of, of the you know, I play the game for free, but you get paid for the after you leave the floor. The public pressure, the media pressure. Get out of my face. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not talking. Man. No comment. How about that one? Basketball is simple. It's a simple game. But when you leave this, 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 this confined zone, it's hard. It's hard. And like I said, I never have to prove anything to people in this country and all this business because they can, you know, this business kiss my ass. I don't give a damn what they think about me. While the Chicago Bulls were on the road, their GM took his shot back home. Jerry Krause again made his plans for next season very clear. Coach Phil Jackson won't be back. And with Michael Jordan on record as saying he won't play for anyone other than Jackson, Krause told the Chicago Tribune, quote, if Michael chooses to leave because there is another coach here, then it's his choice, not ours. We would love to have Michael back, but Michael is going to have to play for someone else. It isn't going to be Phil. You gave, me a good, you gave me a good article the other day. I appreciate that. Which one? The one that you said, quit worrying about what he's going to do and live for the oh. present. Don't worry about it next year. Leave him alone. Quit asking stupid questions about what's happening. Damn, I'm sick of it, too. I'm tired of it. I am totally tired of it. I'm going to stop talking to y'all. Just say next question. Yeah, I mean, y'all guys, you guys don't do it anymore, but it's on the road. That's what killed me. 
It's got to be a little draining. Every city, it's like, is it Michael's last game and everything that's going on with that? Is it, is it wearing on you a little? Does it wear on you a little bit? Yeah, it gets old. Questions don't change, and the answer's pretty much the same. <laughs> so wouldn't it be nice if Bulls fans could enjoy this title run without worrying that it could be the final running of the Bulls? More questions in that vein for Michael Jordan today. You said that this is your last year. Could this have been your last outing in the Bay Area? You think it's your last regular season one here? Do you get a sense it's Michael's final run as a Bull? Do you think tonight will be your last time here? Should he retire? It's his decision. Are we required to ask every game if you're going to retire? You're going to get the same answer. Although I may have uh, the same answers. I practice them quite a bit. I don't know. You never know. You never know. Beats me. You know, it may be the last time, last dance, whatever, but I'm not focusing on that. I'm just focusing on the moment. You enjoy the moment. You know, enjoy the, the game. And, you know, and whenever, whatever happens for this organization, you know, at the end of the season, happens. What happens after that happens? Yeah, I think people, or the media, basically, are trying to redirect or trying to change some kind of little emphasis within the question and see if it, my answers change. You know, my, my response to change. So what about next year, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I love you guys. Matt, the theme that I pick up from both of those clips where we heard Rodman talk about the frustration and being paid for the bullshit off the court, not on the floor, and then MJ just being so fed up, and you hear how many times he was asked the montage of, you know, is this your last year? What's your future going to look like? All just being changed up uh, makes a lot of sense. And, And from a media's perspective, too, outside of OJ Simpson in the 90s, this is the biggest story you could possibly break as a journalist in sports is whether or not MJ has made a decision, whether he's retiring, uh, whether he's coming back for another year uh, after this one. This was the biggest story to break in a decade. Would you agree? I mean, it was nonstop, nonstop speculation. Um, You know, like I would certainly say something close to it in, in recent history that even younger NBA fans would remember is LeBron's decision, you know, that that he got, you know, massacred for because of the style in which he did it. Still does. Um, right. But, like, as far as just, like, the crazy anticipation. But that was a summer. I mean, people talked about will, or, will LeBron stay, will LeBron go. But then once it became clear that he was going to take meetings of free agency and it might not just be, yeah, I'll stay in Cleveland, then it really ratcheted up. This was an entire season of media following around the Bulls, asking Phil Jackson, asking Scotty, asking MJ, what's going to happen? I mean, can you imagine how exhausting that must have been for them mentally? Right. And you think about, too, now, the way that guys conduct interviews are so cookie cutter compared to back then. I feel like I feel like you got a lot more honesty from guys. And sure, there's examples that may, may not support my case, but still think about all the cookie cutter answers we get from guys in press conferences day in and day out. And it's very it's more rare to hear a guy be very open and honest and trustworthy. And you see those same types of players and same types of guys uh, continue to be like that throughout their career where now it, it's just, you get, you get people asking talk about, or uh, you get them span on for three minutes with a question before you get an answer. And it's not really even a question more a statement. So uh, to hear these guys kind of be honest and upfront about how frustrated they were with being asked all of these all the time. And think about it. It's not just at the NBA. It's not just on the NBA floor, on the NBA time. 
it's off time. Anytime you go out anywhere, you're being asked this. So I, I can only imagine MJ was probably asked what 30 to 40 to 50 times a day, whether or not he was staying or he was going after a while being asked the same question over and over again, it drives you absolutely batshit insane. And I can understand why both him and Rodman were getting pissed off at the end. Yeah. And as you heard Rodman or as you heard MJ saying the tail end of that clip, it's like, well, you guys stopped referring to the local beat writers who were even welcome to, you know, hang out in the trainer's room. That's what that was from, uh, I believe, or at least one of those uh, shots right. uh, had Bulls beat writers hanging out in the trainer's room, which is like another totally different and weird thing about today's NBA. They don't let media in the trainer's room. And the no- number of minutes and when exactly in parts of the day they're allowed in the locker room is way more restricted and regulated than it used to be back then. So that's another di- thing that's different. But he, but MJ saying like, yes, yeah, the national guys. He's like, oh, okay. They're like, the, this is the Bulls road game, the last Bull, road road game against the Orlando Magic. So this, we have to ask. Oh, is this your last time playing in Orlando? Like, man, who the fuck cares? Leave me alone. <laughs> right, right. So that's kind of where we were left. Is uh, Bulls lose the game uh, on the road to Utah? Oh, and where where else we were left was potentially some Horace Grant, Sam Smith beef. Oh, really? I do not know about any yeah, of that. Yeah, did you not catch that? I did not. Yeah. There's some there's some new stuff coming up in these next episodes about some things that that uh, Sam Smith wrote that were about Horace being unhappy, Horace asking for more shots, MJ getting all the glory, all this stuff. Um, and then, like, the last thing we hear, it may have been the teaser for next week's episodes, is Horace saying, like, I never said that to Sam Smith. So, like, you know, Sam Smith is a legend covered this team you know has been on this beat longer than even uh casey johnson and uh obviously the author of the jordan rules and as well as other books you know uh detailing mj's career and the bulls dynasty and he got in trouble once or twice for, for putting some things in print that some members of the bulls organization whether it be ownership management or players uh took issue with so really looking forward to to more drama as this documentary escalates that must have been in the trailer for five and six i which i need to go back and watch but i'm excited for that and speaking of sam smith as we wrap up here another favorite part for me was when he talked about how they all had bets in 89 that cleveland was going to sweep them whether it was going to be in in four game or they were going to oh, win yeah. the series and in three, said, four, five. And Sam will take care of you tonight. <laughs> right. Oh, took care of you last week, took care of you last night, and I'm going to take care of you tonight, which was fantastic. You, I don't know. You just don't get stories like that anymore, which was truly amazing. But uh, yeah, I mean, Matt, you and I can go three hours talking about this, just these two episodes. We said the same thing last week as well. Uh, but we would love to hear kind of if we missed anything from these episodes or even the first four episodes. Uh, something that was your favorite part of the documentary, maybe something that you learned from the documentary, or just your overall perspective, whether you're a young fan or you're an older fan, uh, you lived through this era or you didn't, we'd love to hear from you. 331-979-1369, the place to drop your voicemails and your text messages. Uh, So if you want to be a part of our loaded mailbag on Wednesday, drop your voicemail, your text message, or tweet at us at LockedOnBulls. Uh, at Jordan Z. Malley and at Bulls underscore Peck on Twitter. Once again, 331-979-1369, the place to do that. For Matt Peck, I'm Jordan Malley, Bulls Nation. Have a wonderful day. We'll be back on Wednesday with a fresh episode. For Jordan and Matt, we are out. 
Deuces. Locked on Bulls, a show for the most passionate fan base in the NBA. Hosts Jordan Malley and Matt Peck dive into the best Bulls news and stories around the NBA. For more content and to stay up to date, head over to LockedOnBulls.com. 